For December 20th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 129, Patrimony of the Dude. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the, uh, from the left coast, which, uh, on which God has broken his promise not to destroy the earth with water uh, once again. Yes, we have, had, we have had like flood conditions for the last two days. Uh, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, and I trudged through the rain, uh, getting my shoes all wet today, because we don't have waterproof clothing here on the west coast, uh, to see Tron Legacy. And so did 75% of the panel tonight. So that's what we are talking Woo-hoo. about. Blanket, you know, spoiler alert, not that it may makes a damn bit of difference with this movie. Um, <laughs> as we were, as we were, um, I forget who it was who said it, uh, but as we were preparing for this podcast in our uh, email conversation, getting ready for it, we said, um, spoiler alert, it's all a computer program. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. Actual spoiler alert. It's not just like the part in the grid is a computer program. What about the parts like before or after the ostensibly come in and out of the or going into the grid and coming out of the grid? What if those are parts of a computer program too? Did you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Huh? This is Tron is actually a film which takes place inside the universe of the Matrix. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> You're blowing my mind. But let's get on to the question of the week. Uh, as Olivia Wilde's character says to um, what's his name's character, to Sam Flynn in the movie. Describe the sun. And that is the question of the week. Mark <laughs> Lee, describe the sun. Gosh, I don't know. I've never had to before. Which is what Sam Flynn's uh, lame cop-out answer is. Uh, he could have just as easily said, you know, it's a big flaming ball of gas with nuclear fusion. And if you look at it directly, it'll burn your eyes out. It's a big white ball of, ball of white hot stuff in the sky. It also gives him a killer tan. That is what the sun is. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Except Sam Flynn doesn't have a killer tan. So I was really referring to me. Dark, oh, okay. dark suave. Yeah, me. everyone everyone is kind of pasty in the movie, but it takes place in a it takes place in a universe without light and only without of, a without a sun. Yeah, blue glowing neon. I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll talk about this when I get Wait, there. wait, so there so there aren't any black people on the grid? There's an Asian, definitely an Asian person there, on the grid. There are Asian people on the grid. Yes, no, there there were black people. There were black. Well, of people. course there, of course there are Asian people on the grid. Mark, I'm asking if there are any black people. There were, there were uh, a couple of, uh, there were a couple of black actors in the, uh, uh, in the movie. So apparently, what, John, what are you trying to say, John? That Asian people are very likely to be inside of some virtual computer environment because we're going to computers. Uh, I, I, I think it's took like, a real ugly turn real fast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Chug, chug your drink and uh, get a new one from the fridge if you're playing the Overthinking and Podcast drinking game. It's time to move on to John Parrish. Describe the sun. Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter. Little darling... It seems like years since it's been here. Here comes the sun. (laughs) Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. That, that that's that's my answer <laughs> thank you very much uh you're the one who hasn't seen tron so you'll you'll uh you'll fulfill the function of the black friend on uh, a lot of movies um saying things like what damn and and that's whack I, I I also reserved for myself the right for an occasional. Oh no, they didn't. <laughs> That's right. You res- you reserve that right. We we look forward to hearing it. Uh, Jordan Stokes, describe the sun. I'm just trying to decide whether uh, Sam Flynn's sort of it's literally impossible to describe the sun. Answer would have been more or less annoying if he had busted out into a Beatles song at that point, being like you know. <laughs> I think that my uh, my my feelings can best be expressed but, uh, through a monologue. No, uh, the sun <laughs> is a very 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 bright point of light uh, up in the sky, 
it's actually very large, but you can cover it up with your thumb if you sort of hold it up. Uh, looking directly at it, it burns your eyes, and it's very warm on your skin and makes plants grow. That would be my that would be my uh, answer if someone who had never seen the sun asked me to describe it. I feel like it's not that hard to do. Excellent. Uh, my answer: um, the sun is at the center of our metaphorical system. Hmm. Moving right along. Well, actually, no, let me, <laughs> let me say. Let me let me say what I what I mean by that. There are certain things that you expect every person has had contact with, right? Um, the sun is one. Water is another. Uh, some kind of parent is another. Um, and uh, and that you can use these as a basis for kind of metaphorical communication with them, uh, even across cultures, and people on the grid are are lacking that, and it's it's sort of interesting to to imagine how you would talk uh, with someone whose um, you know whose whose points of reference are entirely different uh, from yours. You know, even even um, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra had the beast in common. <laughs> I was gonna say, like someone, someone had to take that to Darmok Town. I was <laughs> in the absence of Fenzel, right? <laughs> Shaka when the walls fell. Oh, right. We had a um, we had a uh, a question on the um, kind of an indignant question in the comments of the last episode. Uh, if we're all giggly, we're all pretty drunk at this point. I'm just uh, gonna throw that out there. Um, pretty drunk. <laughs> Uh, where's Fenzel? Someone, someone said. Well, Pete Fenzel is on a long, overthinking vision quest. You can't r- churn out six thousand words about Dragon Ball Z every week uh, and not have to go refill the tank. So um, Pete has Netflixed the entire Dragon Ball Z series and is sitting Clockwork Orange style with his eyelids uh, uh, opened up, uh, you know, restrained open so that he can watch the whole thing in one fell swoop. And so he's uh, he's sitting in front of the thing uh, with, um, you know, what the Ninth Symphony playing uh, loud on the stereo and Dragon Ball Z going on the um, on the screen in front of him. Uh, once he's recovered from this, he'll be back on the podcast, but not until then. And knowing how pacing goes on Dragon Ball, that could be some time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I believe when he comes back from that, his power level just might be over, I don't know, say 9,000? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> hey, hang on, let me, let, me, let me get the scanner out. Uh, okay. All right, I, 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 can, I can verify what his power level is now. All right, I'm good. Wait, what? What is that power level, John? Oh, it's uh, it's it's just under nine thousand. Just under <laughs> eight thousand nine hundred and seventy-four. Yeah, I was uh, just going to be like, imagine if there was a Dragon Ball episode where they sat down and started watching the show Dragon Ball. The show would never end. And then I realized that literally any show that worked that way would never end. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a thirty a thirty second commercial for Skittles that had them sitting down to watch that same 30 second commercial for Skittles would never end. You've heard this. There are a bunch of stories, right? Like, uh, it was a dark and stormy night. Three people were sitting around a campfire. They didn't have anything to do. So one of them decided to tell a story and this is how it started. It was a dark and stormy night. Three people were sitting around a campfire they didn't have anything to do, so one of them decided to tell a story, and this is how it started. Like, there are a bunch Get of... Get to the good part! <laughs> right. Are there boobies in this story? <laughs> sure. Wait and see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Three people were sitting around a campfire. They didn't have anything to do. So one of them decided to tell a story, and this is how it started. It was a dark and stormy night. Nope, no boobies yet. <laughs> uh, oh no! We should talk about we should talk about Tron. We should actually get to the thing that we promised that we should talk about, even though this is the Overthinking It podcast. Um, I was profoundly bored during this this film. Not that it didn't have its high points, but I was uh, like I was looking at my watch, which was inconvenient because I had to raise up my 3D glasses in order to like see my watch because they make my vision go all squirrely. Um, Can I? Can I say one thing about Tron before, I guess, essentially tapping out for the rest of the podcast, except to (laughs) 
except to ask disbelieving questions simply because, you know, I haven't seen it. I'm the, the one out of four members of the podcast who has not seen Tron Legacy. But I want to reiterate a comment I made on an earlier podcast, and this was just having seen the trailer at this point, namely that uh, there were certain things about this version of Tron that kind of put me off, particularly like in one of the earlier teaser trailers, we see the we see a light cycle duel, like, you know, two guys in light cycles racing along. And you can see in the trails that the light cycles make these solid wall trails, like these little swirling bits of energy, like loose, loose electrons or something. And that that bothered me when I saw it. I mean, just a little bit, because the original Tron was very stiff and artificial and digital and you could tell the the walls these light cycles made they were all one solid color which which means you know they were completely artificial completely digital nothing real about them and adding these weird like flowing bits of energy along the ends of them it it bothered me in a sense that it's sort of adding some i i guess adding some enhanced organic element to this inherently digital world and that I mean, it, it's it's a flourish, but it doesn't really serve the uh, it doesn't really serve the theme or the story, which is that there's this world that's digital and artificial, and there's this world that's organic and real, and you can get zapped by a laser and transport into one of them, but it's completely different from the real world. And adding these little adding these little flourish elements sort of blurs that line for me, and it was I, I, I thought it was <clears throat> I thought it was indicative of a growing technical sophistication but not really growing storytelling sophistication and there Edison. you go john you're asking you're asking something from this movie which is just in no position at all to deliver that being any sort of logic and consistency in the way that constructs its universe why what do you mean mark <laughs> where do i start Basically, the entire conceit and concept of these programs inside of this computer and there's this user and some things, these things are digital and yet somehow they're not quite. I mean, I could go on and on and sort of throw all these different concepts out there, except really uh, I'm, not, I'm not really exaggerating much when I say they don't make any sense, not even internally within the movie. And just the entire thing just kind of becomes this big morass of uh, wannabe mythology, um, yet kind of none of it ever really sort of uh, reaches any sort of apotheosis or payoff at the end and contributes to the uh, conclusion of the plot. There's like, That's in, yeah. in addition to those kind of organic elements, there's a lot of kind of insect imagery in the thing as though, you know, left to, left to its own devices, the, the cyber world, the, uh, what is it? The grid, right. Would organize itself into like, I don't know, dragonfly wings and things like that. Well, you you mentioned that there's no no logical consistency. I mean, what's what's at stake in the movie? What what hangs in the balance? I think it's <laughs> John. What well, hangs this... in the balance? Only a little thing called life itself. Yeah, everything oh, <laughs> for very okay. poorly defined reasons. Yeah. <laughs> great one of, one of one of those. Okay, great. Well, I think uh, ostensibly, only... like the really bad thing is like if evil Ken, Kevin Flynn clue. Like can get a hold of the disc, then he can somehow materialize in the real world, which that by itself doesn't really make sense. How and if computer-generated Jeff Bridges can make it to the real world, we'll all fall into the uncanny valley and we'll never get out. I found like more obnoxious than that, which you know I was willing to say, okay, this guy's evil; he wants to escape into the real world. I'll, I'll let that go. I've seen that plot enough times that I can fill in the details myself. What bothered me was the idea that Olivia Wilde's character has within her DNA, which of course is not DNA because she's a computer program, the answer to every philosophical, moral, and scientific question that humanity has ever asked for no reason. Because she's an ISO. Because, you know, she just, they all just materialize out of nothing and it just kind of came from being. And they're perfect, man. What's there not to get? <laughs> yeah. you, got, so, you, got, I mean, you got programs writing programs, man. Right, right. <laughs> it, it, a, I feel like this is a case where um, probably there was a draft of the script in which – so the, the ISOs, for people who haven't seen the movie, are like these strange artificial intelligences that just sort of evolved out of the primordial soup of this digital world that, uh, that Jeff Bridges has created. And – 
to a lot of people, the idea that an artificial intelligence would just kind of manifest is in itself plenty exciting. I'm guessing that that's what it was. That was all that it was at first. You know, there's, there's a new species of fully sentient life uh, on this computer, and that needs to be preserved. But then someone got a, a second pass at the script, and they said they don't care about that. So they had to have, like, within her brain somehow is, like, the secret to cold fusion or something like that. I don't know. That, that I found annoying. So they're called, they're called what? ISOs? Like ISO? ISO? Uh, According to the Wikipedia summary, isomorphic algorithms um, or or ISOs is what they're called. But when I'm looking at spelled out here, it's ISO, like capital ISO. So so do do you think there's any relation between that and the the International Standards Organization, ISO, which is also responsible for, you know, certifying, you know, warehouses and manufacturing plants to make sure they they produce all goods up to an identical quality standard? Uh, I'm going to go on a limb and say no. (laughs) Because <laughs> that would be interesting if they were, but, <laughs> but this movie's a lot of things. I don't think int- well, I was about to say that interesting is not one of them, but that actually there are some uh, some interesting things that we can get into. But I'll let you guys, uh, 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 Stokes and Rather, uh, unpack those things for us. The well, let's let's talk about the um, uh, the plot a little more though. The for must, Disney, must we <laughs> for Disney a um, uh, a missing parent plot. Like seems like a uh, you know a, a fastball right down the middle, right? Like that that's a should be exactly in their comfort zone. Um, yeah, didn't didn't they steal that from Spielberg? Isn't that all his movies? Well, it's all Disney movies. It's all the cartoons. I mean, they, this is in their storytelling core competency, and it's so bloodless here. It's uh, you know it's without the capacity well, well, to to make to, to make you care about anyone. Well, to be fair, you know, it's not just like, you know, X is ripping off Y. I mean, what? You know, the Bible? Jesus is missing his father. Huh? Well, huh? sure. Okay. Yes, yes. I think we'll get but, into it. I mean, mostly facetious, but I was, you know, I'm saying like, yeah, that's, I think the, the missing parents thing is probably a storytelling trope, which goes uh, way back prior to Disney, prior to Spielberg. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I want to relate it to the, I want to relate it to old Disney movies. And by, by old Disney mo- movies, I mean the cartoons. I mean Snow White with no mother. I mean, you know, Cinderella with no mother. I mean Sleeping Beauty with no mother. I mean The Lion King losing his father. I mean, uh, you know, Ariel sort of turning her back on his, her father. Uh, Aladdin being an orphan. You know, the, these... Um, these characters, the the kind of children without a parent character, and they they all in all of those cases the um, you know the irony is that the the cartoon um, seems a lot more fleshed out than the real uh, uh, you know than the real life people um, in Tron, though they're not all real life people because most of them are computer generated, and I should probably abandon this this line of. <laughs> right now but i'm not going to uh, <laughs> right? this, in absence of fenzel <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost <laughs> as though that came out way bitchier than i meant it to be <laughs> what i was saying is that like we have to all go as as hard and fast as we can because there's no one to charge into the gap what i'm saying is is these these all these things are kind of gestured to as though kind of pointing at the trope were enough to fill in uh, a complete plot behind the movie as though you know they had storytelling autocomplete turned on right, right. you can see it in the in the kind of the, the narrative <laughs> the narrative math textbook right like the plot is left as an exercise to the viewer and we don't um we don't actually uh <laughs> you know we don't actually get any of the emotional payoff um that you know that that all the action, all the the visual splendor, and there is a good deal of visual splendor, and that the um, the one and a half good performances in the movie, uh, <laughs> from uh, one from Michael Sheen and uh, one half from Jeff Bridges, are supposed to support. Um, you know, I it's uh, it's a shocking for a Disney movie. It's kind of a shocking omission. Uh, I feel like they're. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't that be said of, of a lot of contemporary movies, your, your notion of, you know, script filled on automatic? Like, aren't, aren't most, I would say, aren't almost all movies produced by the, the major studio system sort of formulaic, sort of, you know, here's the structure of a plot and, 
you know, here's the moment where you're meant to identify with our hero. Here's the moment where our hero's in most peril and you're supposed to, you know, shake along with him as he shakes. Here's the moment where he's most downcast and you're supposed to fear for him as he's afraid, etc. Sure, but here's, or, here's the difference. Right? Oh, sorry, I, I should let you finish before I jump in. No, 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 that was it. Um, here's the difference. When you write a sonnet, you actually have to put 14 lines on the paper, right? What, what, what Tron does is akin to kind of writing the word sonnet in brackets and then just getting on with its life. Do, I, does, right. does that make sense? That, like, uh, here's the idea of a sonnet, and you can, you, can, uh, you can fill in all the details, the rhyme scheme, the whole texture of the thing, all the language. You know, I have no, I have no problem with formula. I think in a lot of, a lot of ways it can actually aid, uh, aid in storytelling. You know, it's not an accident that good stories tend to fall into, uh, into a number of patterns. Not that there aren't exceptions. There are always exceptions being, you know, being a human thing, and this is one of the morals of Tron, there, there is no kind of machine-like perfection. There is no sort of super efficient model that you can follow. There's only the, um, you know, kind of perfectly imperfect human model, uh, d- d- uh, warts and all, as it were. Um, you know, Shaka when the walls of narrative fell. But the... <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, uh, but th- but this movie seems um, not not just formulaic, but also kind of um, not not cynical, but but kind of kind of meta, kind of postmodern. In um, you know, there's a construction in programming. If you do any computer programming, uh, there's a, a directive in a lot of programming languages called include that allows you to. Uh, pull in a whole bunch of um, other programming functions. Um, so, like in C, like uh, one of the basic files is called standard input output stdio dot uh, It's a header file, and so at the at the top of a lot of C programs, you see like include stdio dot um, It's it's as though you this this movie has like a big include statement at the beginning that's like you know include. You know, pater absconditum, uh, absconditus, right? Like, uh, include um, uh, all your assumptions about th- this thing so that it doesn't have to, um, uh, so that it doesn't actually have to uh, even paint by the numbers to put it in. Anyway, I've said the same thing three times. We should move on, but. I feel like with, with, that, uh, with that kind of plot, there are two things you can do with it. One is you can actually tell the story. You know, which Tron really doesn't do. It, it doesn't uh, follow Sam Flynn through that journey really well. Um, the other thing that you can do is have that story set up the character and then tell some other compelling story about that character. Just something that like that Spielberg does very well, I think, that the sort of becoming a responsible adult because you are currently a man-child thing that he does like fits into an actual story about sharks or about dinosaurs or about whatever. Like he, he, do, he doesn't just say, okay, I've got this great world. I've got like Jurassic park. That seems like a cool place to run around. And then I've got somebody dealing with like abandonment issues and that will take care of the plot. Right. He thinks of some kind of story, even if it's just a travelogue um, of like moving across the Island from point A to point B, he tells that story, which Tron doesn't do that. I think. Like, it, it, uh, it takes you around to various points on the grid and shows off a lot of cool scenery and a lot of cool set pieces, but there's no sense of, like, moving from point A to point B in a meaningful way. Rather, it's like, uh, well, it's like levels on a video game, right? Like, going from Sky World to Ice World doesn't have any kind of, you know, causality. It's just that one comes after the other and is more difficult, relatively. Thank you, Mario. But our princess is in another <laughs> castle. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, cons- considering the the video game aspects of this movie and the the video game aspects of the the plot, Stokes, as you describe it, do you think that's do you think that's deliberate, or do you think that's the the writers of the screenplay sort of taking a bunt on this pitch and saying? And, you know, we're pitching towards people who like video games enough that they, you know, are cultish fans of a movie that is essentially derived from a video game. Maybe they'll accept this this plot contrivance such as it is. Do you think that's the case or or what? You know, it could be when uh, like uh, Mark and I watched this thing together 
And uh, he came out complaining about all the exposition because you'd have like half an hour of exposition and then a fairly, fairly awesome action scene on light cycles, which I'll, I agree with you that the way that those trails are like uh, animated in there is kind of boring. But the action scene on the light cycles works. And then you have like 30 more minutes of exposition. <laughs> the whole part about explain, just try to explain the ISOs. And at that point, like yeah. my eyes are just rolling into the back of my head. And then you have like another action scene. And uh, as, as movie storytelling, this is pretty terrible. But if you think of it as video game storytelling, right? Like turn on Final right. Fantasy. What do you get? You get like 30 minutes of exposition. Then you like level for a, about a day and a half. And then you get another 30 minutes of exposition. <laughs> it's like some really long cutscenes. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. But that's what they are. They're, they're cutscenes. The problem with it, though, is that Having cutscenes that are 30 minutes long only works if you've had literally days, if not months, of like playing non-narrative stuff until you get to that big like sure. bolus of narrative. But it, well, like when it's when it's actually <laughs> cutscene and a game that becomes insufferable. I think. Well, like for, you know, first. <laughs> First, first of all, bolus of narrative I particularly like. I think that needs to become an image we use more often. Second, uh, considering the target audience for this movie is people who liked the original Tron, which, let's recall, is a really small audience. I mean, if you consider, <laughs> if you consider the original Tron was a market failure and more or less a a resale failure and a critical uh, failure as well and has only in the 30 uh, actually not 30 28 but uh, nearly 30 years intervening become something of a cult classic you know if you if you consider that small subset of people who liked the original tron and you know it's an okay movie i i i guess it, is this is this the sort of thing they'd go in for, this video game narrative where you're allowed long blocks of relatively stocky exposition so long as it's interspersed with really dazzling action? Is this is this a new and acceptable form of storytelling? Well, I, I think uh, you're, I mean, you're... just as far as the market logic is concerned, the, the, it was the number one movie at the box office this weekend, and it made, I don't know, $45 million or something like that, so... The market seems to be accepting it. Um, I, I don't, it would be bad for a video game, though, right? Like, aren't the aren't the good video games the the kind of the ones that aren't quite on rails in in the same way? Like, uh, have you have you played Metal Gear Solid Two? I, I, I have not. I I am probably the least knowledgeable overthinker on the whole website about video games. I mean, Shayna probably knows more than me, and she's a girl. Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't send me don't send me hate mail, girl gamers. You you know. Oh, 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 gender roles. But seriously, I mean, a lot of a lot of video games, particularly the ones that come out of Japan. I mean, the Final Fantasy series, a lot of the JRPGs, and and Metal Gear Solid. They're, I wouldn't say equal parts exposition and action, but it's it's pretty close. Like anyone who's played. Metal Gear Solid, you know, one through four can can back me up on this, that it's equal parts talking about weird, abstruse things and sneaking around and shooting people. So, I mean, it, it strikes me that, you know, a movie that's equal parts exposition and action would be pretty terrible. But I guess at the same time, you know, to someone who's not acquainted with foreign films, a movie that's equal parts cinematography and scene staging and dialogue would be pretty terrible. And yet that's an accepted storytelling trope. So is this, I guess, an evolution in accepted stories and cinematic styles that we're that we're too old to tolerate oh god that's scary to think that we're we're um, (laughs) we're sort of aging out of the the pop culture uh it's possible well yeah i mean and you know we're all kind of we're all looking at the wrong end of 30 for the you know for this argument anyway the um right and you're not supposed to trust anyone over 30 i think right wasn't that the saying um but listen to what we're saying Right In an action movie, shouldn't the action be incidental to the exposition? That is to say, isn't there a superstructure of plot 
uh, on which the action scenes hang uh, insofar as the action scenes are meant to further the plot because they represent kind of struggle uh, against opposition in in order to achieve some kind of objective or something like that. Like the, we're talking about the the exposition um, or the we're talking about the kind of the plot and the action as though they are. Uh, kind of each of their own world rather than one being subordinate to and and serving the other and it, that should be the the proper place of action in a uh, in a film right yeah, and, and and the reason why we see this problem is again going back to what i've been complaining about this whole time is this mishmash of very complicated ideas the isos the programs the users the discs what they're supposed to mean all this stuff is floating around here and that requires a lot of exposition um and uh, sort of the the action set pieces that are in in place don't really speak well to all of those concepts and things that are flying around so that you just see like there's a light cycle battle and um oh there's they're flying around in these things but what does that have to do really with the isos and the programs the discs and the whatever you know superstructure of the computer program that they're living in nothing or barely anything i i disagree with your assessment or your your rhetorical question rather when i when i go to an action movie or an adventure movie the action is the point the exposition is just meant to heighten the action like if i'm if i'm watching a motorcycle jump about some dude i don't care about that's pretty boring if i'm if i'm watching if i'm watching steve mcqueen try to jump his motorcycle over the barbed wire barrier between germany and switzerland at the end of the great escape that's in, that's incredibly tense but that's because the exposition namely all the the plot elements of you know the movie leading up to it has heightened the action so the stakes of that particular jump are very important to me as opposed to just some dude jumping a motorcycle over just some barbed wire fence. So okay. yeah, no, fair enough. I believe you. You sound like me talking about law and order special victims unit. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I would also say that while our current sort of dominant critical stance about movies says that it all needs to hang together. There have been art forms in the past and still kind of are where it really doesn't work that way. Like, you don't need to know why the ballerina is doing whatever it is that the ballerina does to appreciate it as dance, right? You don't need to, uh, to know why um, in, in opera the tenor is hitting the high B flat. If they hit the high B flat, that's enough. Like, that's really what you came to see. And I think, well, with action movies, it's a little bit, you know, you could go either way. With martial arts movies... Like, I will watch a martial arts movie with the stupidest plot ever. If the kung fu is good, I'll still say that was a great martial arts movie. Okay, well, sure. I guess I'm being too, um, I'm being too normative, I guess, with movies, because there, there, are, there ought to be a variety of movies and a variety of reasons to, uh, to watch movies. You know, there was a Kevin Kelly book recently called What Technology Wants, and I've been thinking about what the camera wants that I mean the book has nothing to do with it it's just that phrase that got me thinking about it and thinking about movies and and the camera wants motion right the camera wants something that is kind of kinetic and exciting um uh and well I I guess in that sense Tron is a success because the uh the action is is exciting it's not only sort of you know heart pounding but it's also it's well shot which I think is a is an achievement and Jordan and I were talking about this before we we got on I think that's an achievement uh especially since so much of um of the action we see is sort of Michael Bay-esque visual gibberish and also because this is an entirely invented world the the rules of which are not entirely clear so it, it can be kind of disorienting and to to make good action scenes uh under imaginary circumstances i think is um you know is some kind of accomplishment right well so what you're saying is what the camera wants is kinetic uh imagery and things like that right um but that obviously doesn't take into account is what the audience wants which is essentially catharsis right that's sure the, uh, I'm, catharsis I'm I'm satisfaction of like Investing in characters and watching and having the payoff of the characters that I invested in have their victory after sadness and, and all this stuff and making it and having it feel like all of that was earned. Right. So that's what I feel like the main thing that, that, that the Tron legacy was missing just because of how shoddily all the plot, the narrative was put together. Okay. 
like, I wonder how you would feel about it, Mark, if the whole thing was just like a giant music video to like three journey albums. <laughs> and and then rather than having the stupid lines about like, what is the sun? You just have uh, Sam Flynn wordlessly get sort of sucked into a computer, fight some dudes, meet this woman, uh, be torn between these two different versions of Jeff Bridges, one of, one of whom is old and one of whom is young and fake looking. Like then, then it actually becomes like for a music video, kind of awesome. Uh, yeah. That, especially if it's, if it's journey. <laughs> The wheel in the sky keeps on turning, man. And you would think, like the disc, right? Is like, oh, clearly that's the wheel in the sky, and you wouldn't need it to be any more clear than that. So, so not having seen the movie, how how bad is the young-looking Jeff Bridges? Because Jeff Bridges, I mean, while while being old, he's not that old. I mean, if you give him a haircut and put in a little. I guess I guess a little foundation to cover up his wrinkles wouldn't wouldn't look that that bad. But I, I mean, does he look that that pasty and weird as as young Clue? I guess it's you know what it you know what it was for me. It was the kind of it was the kind of lack of variety in facial expressions that was the kind of uncanny valley uh, thing for me in this film. You know? So it was a it was a Botox Jeff Bridges. So yeah, sort of. It was um like uh it was clear that the uh it was clear that the sort of death mask like, you know, CGI thing um uh had certain gestures that it was that it was programmed to do and it and it did those, but it I don't know, you sort of missed a full range of expression. Um uh, but it's fairly appropriate from the storytelling perspective that Clue would not have a full range of expression, right? Agreed. The problem is, though, that they introduced CGI Jeff Bridges at, towards the beginning of the movie as Kevin Flynn. Hmm, yeah. Not as a computer program. <laughs> and at that point there is like, ooh, something really doesn't look quite right here. Um, when, they, when it came in, once they were in the grid and it's Clue, I, didn't, I wasn't really thinking about it anymore at that point. But then when I look, think backwards about the totality of it all with the young Kevin Flynn at the beginning, it's like, ugh, not so good. <laughs> yeah. We should talk about religion a little bit because that was the that was the kind of the main subtext that we were kicking around in the um in our pre-show conversation. Uh Amen, brother. <laughs> Preach on. Well, Jordan had a uh, had a uh, kind of a diatribe about this movie and, and gnosticism. Do you want to uh Sure, I'll go for it. Go for it. (laughs) So, like, disclaimer, first of all, I know almost nothing about Gnosticism. But from what little I know, uh, it seems like Tron Legacy was written with early Christian Gnosticism very much in mind. So Gnosticism is kind of a, a version of Christianity where rather than trying to, like, do right things, you're supposed to have right knowledge, I guess, is how you kind of, like, get into heaven. Um, And there are all these secrets, which as you move up in the religion, you get to learn more and more and more. One of the secrets that that they have... It's like Scientology in that respect. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So one of the secrets (laughs) that you learn, if you're like one of these early Gnostic Christians, is that the God in the Old Testament, who's all about, you know, here are your rules and you have to be perfect and not break any of the rules, is not actually God. It's a sort of mirror image of God that the real God creates to do the heavy lifting of building the universe for him. Right? So this is exactly what goes on in Tron Legacy with real Jeff Bridges, Flynn, and his sort of double Clue. Clue is all about making the perfect system, whereas Jeff Bridges is kind of doing his big Lebowski character at many times. And he says, like, you know, uh, you're, you're harsh in my buzz, man. You have to, like, allow there to be humanity and imperfection and this and that. Um, he actually and really then does say almost exactly you're harsh in my buzz at one point. <laughs> yeah, you thought I was exaggerating, but I was just saying how it happens in the movie. And um, I don't know, there's, there's lots of weird little touches. Um, kind of, well, for instance, and this is something that I'm not even sure is true of Gnosticism, but if you were to, like, to read every book that popped up on Google Books uh, with the word Gnosticism in there, you'd find a short story by Borges uh, called The Circular Ruins, where he says that the, the Demiurge, which is the word for this kind of like Gnostic fake god that's supposed to be the Old Testament god, because Gnostic Christianity is deeply anti-Semitic in a lot of ways, um, couldn't actually make man. They could only make, quote, a red atom 
uh, which couldn't stand on its own, but only sort of when the demiurge pulls its strings. And one of the things about Clue in this movie is that he can't actually create new programs. What he can do is kind of brainwash the programs that Flynn has created. And when he does this, the lights on their outfits turn from blue to red. So, I mean, I don't know. That's probably not even intentional, but it was definitely something that, like, you know, it, it lines up too well to not be intentional. I don't know. Um, and then the other thing that goes on, and this is no longer strictly Gnostic, but it's just like how much this movie has, uh, it's, well, really excited about religion. Um, it, at the end, when you see Tron and Clue sort of spinning down through the void together, right? So that's pretty clearly like Lucifer falling out of heaven. But when Tron splashes into the water, he turns good. So it's kind of a reverse of that. Um, then you have at the like the big climax, you have Jeff Bridges destroying the world that he created in order to save his son's life. So I was I was talking to Mark after we saw it that like the, the title of this podcast should be For God So Loved the Son That He Gave His Only Begotten World. Right. It's the reverse of the typical uh, Jesus narrative there. And then like the last shot of the, the movie that's inside the digital realm rather than outside on uh, on the motorcycle is of light moving over the surface of the waters. So it's kind of like a reverse Genesis too. Um, all, all like stacked up there at the end. So does God kill all of his programs then? Apparently. <laughs> well, I don't know. Wait, do, do all the programs die, or is it just that Jeff Bridges dies because he, um, Jeff Bridges dies because he uh, uh, reintegrates or something? I don't know. There's, it's never, the mythology of it is never totally explained. Uh, I mean, the world is gone. They blew up all the, all the structures. Maybe the people are, like, you know, all down in the water now or something, but, like, the, the explosion that takes out the two Jeff Bridgeses blows up... Uh, the entire grid seems like. Um, well, let's say that it's it's it's, it's it didn't it didn't destroy all the people or all the programs inside of it. That explosion act. Well, uh, Sam hits the power switch at the end, so I think everyone died then. Yeah, yeah, rocks falls. Yeah, so we're, Wait, we were no, talking. No, so the power <laughs> switch is just the upstairs power, right? The downstairs power is a totally different. Uh, is on a totally different circuit. <laughs> oh right, right. <laughs> It's uh, I mean, it's unclear, right? Like this, and this is something about the movie. Well, I want to talk about religion more, but like it's unclear. Like if this is a computer world, what computer is it running on? You know, and this is never totally made clear. No, that is one of many things that is not made clear. Well, you know, Jeff Bridges bought stock in Akamai, you know, many years ago, and so they're all living in some server here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's just some un. You know, some forgotten corner of the web that no one ever visits. Yeah, it's a it's a content delivery network of uh, of light, or it's distributed, which means it's everywhere at the same time. <laughs> um, so no, yeah. that doesn't mean anything at all. Nor does it, nor does it mean to mean anything. No, 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 cloud computing, cloud computing. Ah. Yes, it's all in the cloud. It's all in the cloud. Um, no, this the religion thing. What what else is there to talk about? Is there is there any sort of Jesus thing going on with um, the fact that the creator's son is Sam, right? And then he comes back into the world to save it, sort of, but not exactly. Oh, right? well, and here's the other thing, right? This is what uh, what my wife pointed out is that the ISOs are totally, totally the Jews because you know Sam is <laughs> sent into this world to save them. <laughs> and they're this race of people who are kind of rounded up and uh and put to the sword by uh by like the evil forces and they all have tattoos on their arms which is like pretty pretty heavy-handed right <laughs> um wait wait so if if they're if they're jews and if they have all this secret knowledge of of everything that goes on in the world are they are they ashkenazi jews the, is, that the a, is that a protocols of the elders of zion joke no, no, it it uh, Ashkenazi is a it's a specific. Uh, hang on, I'm, I'm googling it now. It's a it's a specific uh, descent of of Judaic, you know, bloodline, not just religious, but also genetic. That's supposedly, you know, particularly high IQ. But you know, well, so that's the opposite of well, not the opposite, but the difference is Sephardic versus Ashkenazi, right? I I don't I don't think it's a it's a one or the other thing. 
Hmm. According to Wikipedia, they make up approximately <laughs> 80% of Jews worldwide. I always thought that it was, you know, this is not something to idly speculate about. <laughs> Everyone can just look it up on their own. I always thought that Ashkenazi was basically from, uh, from Eastern and Northern Europe. Uh, Sephardic was from Spain and Portugal. And uh, Mizrahi was from the Middle East. But I could be wrong. We talk a lot about needing to have more women on the podcast. We could also use one or two more Jew- Jewish people on the podcast. Schechner. Blinky. Schechner. Mosky, where are you? Um, I, you know, so you're talking about a, a conflict between two alternate gods, between a, you know, a demiurge and a, and a real god. Um, mm-hmm. I, I saw it as a conflict between two, um, two sons, right? So I, I saw it as being kind of akin to the, uh, the Arian heresy, which gave, gave rise to the Council of Nicaea uh, in the 5th century um, where uh, where the Nicene Creed with uh, uh, only begotten son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being, the Greek word is homo ousius, of the same ooze. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 we all, we all know the Nicene Creed, please. In Greek, yes. <laughs> we all know it in Greek. With with the father, right? So, so there are two sons in a, in a way. There's a created son and a begotten son, and the the conflict is really between uh, the conflict for the legacy, for the Tron legacy, if you will, is between <laughs> the um, the uh, created son, Clue, the computer program, uh, and the begotten son, Sam, uh, the the uh, the human, the user, you know, and that. Um, so they're competing for daddy's attention. Well, in in a way, they're they're competing for they're competing for legitimacy, right? Who is the one? Uh, who is the authentic one, right? Who is the one who has a right to, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, to the to the what to the patrimony of of the dude? Who gets the girl <laughs> is what it turns out to be in the story, right? Like. Which well, is a shame. Yeah, but the girl is the, the girl is the patrimony of the dude. Yeah. Right. That, that's you know, I, that's I what girls say. are. That's what girls are. Right. They're rewards. They're you know they're they're rewards for good behavior. If you're virtuous in the context of an action movie, you get the girl, and that's that's your prize. Yay! I wanted to say um, <laughs> briefly that uh, you were saying before there was one and a half uh, good performances in this. I'd like to make it one and three quarters because I think that Olivia Wilde actually does a very good job, but it's only one quarter of a character, so you can only count it for that much. <laughs> yeah, sure. She got sick of she got sick of life on House, and decided to. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was actually really impressed. I thought like, wow, Olivia Wilde is in every movie that's coming out. Uh, this Christmas, um, but it turns out uh, that's not the case. This was shot like a year and a half ago, right? Uh, and then it took, I don't know, 70 weeks or something to, to uh, do all the effects and stuff like that. But go, going back to this thing you were saying earlier, Matt, about the Nicene Creed and the begotten son versus the, uh, the created son. Right. So right. The, the, uh, it's a film the theological... Um, uh, a sort of background on that because there's there was there was a debate over whether Jesus was begotten or created and that was important somehow. Yeah, there. I mean, there was the you know was um, this was a uh, the Arians right like uh, believed that and this has nothing to do with with uh, Hitler Arians. Yeah, th- that the Arian race or Nazism or something like that. I, there was a bishop named Arius who had these ideas and so they were called the Arians. Um, uh, his idea was that the son, Jesus, was a creation uh, of the father. That is to say, you know, you're floating around in an empty universe, kind of pre-Genesis 1-1, and, uh, you know, darkness is over the face of the deep. And, um, and uh, then the father creates the son and then goes on to do, um, then goes on to do the rest of uh, creation. That is to say, there was a time when there was no son. And the um, uh, the what turned into the Orthodox Christian, uh, not Orthodox in the sense of, of Russian Orthodox, what turned into the, uh, or Eastern Orthodox, what turned into the canonical Christian belief was that, um, that the son is eternally begotten of the father. That is to say, like there was never a time when this, um, 
this sort of uh, uh, relational God, you know, Father, Son, and and Spirit, Holy Wind, right? Like, um, uh, didn't exist. Um, holy Breath, right? Uh, the um, and so, right, they, they won out. They won out at the Council of Nicaea, and the result is the Nicene Creed, which kind of enshrines. And I always thought they were kind of rubbing it in, in the, in the uh, Nicene Creed. Uh, it's not enough to say it once. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, only begotten, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, one in being with the Father. You know, yes, yes, rather, we all know the Nicene Creed in <laughs> Greek. I think we've established this already on the podcast. My, my, point, is, my point is that, like, isn't it enough to say it once? It, it, it strikes me that they're at the Council of Nicaea, they kind of decided to twist the knife a little bit by repeating it over and over and over and over again um, just, to, uh, just to show those Aryans who, uh, who was boss. Um, and, it, it, you know, it strikes me, too, that kind of the valence of being anti-Semitic in, uh, in you know, the, uh, the early part of the Common Era is probably different than it is uh, today, right? Like, if, if you're an early Christian, you really are trying to, to set yourself up against the dominant monotheistic paradigm, which is, which is the Jews. You know, so you are the, you are the rebel alliance, right, at, you know, at that point. And so to be, to be anti-Jew is trying to carve out a, a monotheistic identity for yourself that is... Um, uh, I, I, that is uniquely, I, that is uniquely Christian, rather than being, uh, uh, you know, rather than a sort of 20th century anti-Semitism, which has to do with the political um, and uh, and historical evil of. Uh, I don't. I don't know, you know that there's a point in history where being anti-Semitic was to rail against the dominant force of anything, except perhaps a very limited amount of time in Jerusalem. I mean, I mean, if you consider, you know, the history of Christianity from zero common era till today, the the primary political power was the Roman Empire at that point. And at that point, Judaism was already in, you know, the subaltern tier. So I I think for at least the last 2000 years, if not further, Judaism has been, you know, similarly subalternate. Well, 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 well before that, right? Because the, uh, you know, I don't know, the Egyptians enslaved them and, and, and whatnot. But um, I don't know. Really, really, when have the Jews ever caught a break? I mean, really. That, that's, that's one of the, sorry, uh, minor tangent here, but that's one of the, the more, uh, more pressing things that I've, I've found reading. Uh, I've been reading uh, Barbara Tuchman's A Distant Mirror, which is a history of Europe in the 13th century, or sorry, 13th and 14th century, uh, you know, the eras of the, the Black Plague and a lot of the Crusades and a lot of the, the wars between France and England. And one of, the, one of the more depressingly regular things is that every time there's an uprising, the first item on the agenda is to burn the Jewish quarter, regardless of, of who is responsible. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's strike back against the burghers and, you know, let's, let's overthrow the monarchy. And also let's, let's set fire to every, every Jewish shop in the area because, you know, it's a thing. <laughs> and that's why all the ISOs had to die. <laughs> yes, that, that's why the ISOs had to get it because you know. Uh, I mean, wow, I, I, this, this guys, is, I, <laughs> <laughs> wow! This podcast is spiraling quickly. Out of control here. Well, we can I, talk about how it's it's a nearly the laziest way to make Clue a villain, right? Like he he, he sets up a genocide. You're not really confronted with the consequences of this. You're not really shown what it entails you're just kind of told that it has happened to make him unimpeachably vile yeah and he didn't even have a good reason for doing so either i mean in passing mentioned something about how it wasn't it was against his perfect system idea and all these types of things but you know it's all it all glossed over so quickly like like much of the rest of the exposition you're just struggling struggling and thinking uh okay sure i guess yeah, like yeah. It's, it's an interesting okay. idea that he might think that these new life forms that he doesn't have a classification for aren't perfect and therefore need to be deleted so that his system can be perfect. But they don't – I mean they just kind of like they, – they give you what I gave you there is kind of like the, the sketch of the idea. They don't uh, put it into the text in any kind of interesting way. Right. There were no uh, roundups of, of – long drawn out roundups of – 
ISO scenes with the teary uh, ISOs, the, the child departed from the teary eyes, teary eyed ISO mother and train tracks and, and those sorts of things. You know, this also brings up, uh, it was one of the complaints that Chenzel had about Avatar, a lot of bunch of people had about Avatar, I think, which is that the Navi are so utterly human. If the ISOs really are a new form of life, that they should look exactly like people is a bit questionable to me. You know? That they right. should look if yeah, if they're perfect, like why are they uh, trapped in a corporeal being, you know, with the limitations of a human body as well? Well, this has to be, I mean, uh, this has to be one of the things, you know, wh- why are why is the representation of humans on this um uh on this grid uh in human form? You know, that we're looking at we're, we're sort of looking back oh, at Oh, sexy bodysuits, that's the reason why. I forgot. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean, I did pay $13 for this movie after all. But, 16. Uh, well, that's New York. But. Oh yeah. But I, I saw it on a, I saw it on a Sunday afternoon, you know, I, you know, with a bunch of blue hairs, um, <laughs> blue hairs, blue neon lights. It's uh, it's all coming together. Um, we're, we're sort of looking back at tomorrow in, in a way at when we go to see this movie, that is to say, we're looking at a vision of the future that was formed uh, in a lot of ways, before um, really computers and the the uh, the workings of computers were well understood by the the general public um, it 's so what you see is a is a post digital world 's take on a pre digital world 's um, uh, future. You see this a lot in in Star Wars in the early Star Wars movies too, where everything is is buttons and keys and uh, you know um, uh, servo actuated stuff rather than your um, uh, rather than your what your sort of minority report style uh, uh, proto iPad um, right, right, touch, right. touch display so the the um, the thing that this movie does is kind of have it both ways you have your uh, like the the uh, 1980s keyboard uh, that is dusty that um, Sam discovers, you know, in the basement underneath the arcade is, uh, is this touchscreen kind of thing. And yet, you know, in, did you notice that when the alarm goes off uh, in Encom, because Sam is messing around in the server room, um, rather than appearing on one of the dozens of flat screen displays in front of the security guard, the security guard looks up at a wall where there is a schematic of the building painted on the wall, and a little LED is blinking in that to, to uh, show where the uh, disturbance is uh, after the alarm goes off. You know, you're, you're talking about a... Um, uh, a, kind of an unholy alliance of uh, of digital and pre-digital uh, conceptions of the future, uh, which you know, like everything else in the movie, is kind of a fuster cluck conceptually. Well, actually, when when you started down that line of thought, Matt, what I was thinking about is actually sort of less of a pre-digital versus digital divide, and more sort of a pre-network versus network divide, right? I mean, the concepts of computing at the time of the original Tron movie, which, by the way, I haven't seen in many, many years, um, is that a sort of the, you know, individual workstation and the data that lives on that local system and the programs that access that data, right? And then sort of that concept, you take that out to what you see in this movie, Tron Legacy, with the grid and these programs or individuals that walk around, and they all have a disk as well, which that to me was the the major holdover from sort of pre-network ideas that this disc is your identity and it's very important. And if you lose it, you're screwed as opposed to, you know, we were joking about it's all in the cloud earlier, but Hey, that's kind of what the, the whole, you know, the, the concept we're moving to now where, you know, my, the files in Dropbox are on my three different computers and on the cloud as well too. It's sort of not this concept of like, I have to carry on all my documents around on a stupid disc anymore. Huh. Far be it from me to say that the uh, that the Matrix did something right uh, in the later Matrix movies. I mean, <laughs> but rather rather than the system that you have here, where like inside the computer, the way to kill somebody is to like get access to their disk and break it. Um, what they do in the Matrix with all of like the multiple Smiths is they try to uh, to bring down people's machines with a DDoS attack, right? Sort of. Kind of unpack unpack <laughs> that a little because I'm I'm maybe dense but I'm kind of not. Following. Well, a- according to what I've been reading lately about uh, about WikiLeaks, sure. Uh, when people want to like break an online system, what they do is they 
use sort of virus-like things to get a large number of computers all over the world to request information from a particular server all at the same time. And, like, you have many, many people doing this, each of them running a botnet of, like, a thousand computers, and all of these sort of, like, this swarming thing uh, will crash the system. So the idea that, like, you have two people locked in what is somehow translated into a metaphor of, like, a sword fight is not how an actual computer fight would go. Rather, you would have, like, you know, one person multiplies themselves into 2,000 dudes, and then they all just, like, jump on the other person and sit on them. And they can't get up because they're <laughs> sitting up. So, so I, I, I take it Tron Legacy doesn't doesn't evoke this this existing metaphor of a, of a DDoS to its fullest and most accurate extent. Not at all. Yeah, in no way. Never at any time. I mean, oh, I okay, guess, good. Good to know. Yeah. Like all these concepts that we have modern computing about scalability and uh, you know sort of lack of distance and these sorts of things just don't exist. That's one of the main things that bothered me as well was that, you know, somehow that Sam, no, no, Sam, uh, 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 Ken, Kevin Flynn can get off the grid and be physically far removed from, the, uh, from where all the action is taking place. And then they have to go to the portal, which, again, is physically far removed from this other place. They have to take, hop on this slow-ass train and take a really long, boring ride over to get to wherever this thing is, right? I mean, I understand, like, you know, going back to what we said earlier about how, you know, they're trying to make the, about these physical, you know, journeys from physical place to place um, and, you know, the, how that helped, how that would supposedly help propel the narrative along. But again, going back to our modern idea of computing and things like that, it just doesn't make sense. And this is- I don't know, Mark. Have you ever have you ever had to wait for IT to give you access to a secure server and just like you're <laughs> sitting around your computer and like, oh, God, why can't I just log into this thing already? I, I, there, there's an amount of time invested there. It's not completely unrealistic. Oh, the other thing oh, you could also argue is the uh, if you're playing, you know, uh, uh, Unreal Tournament and, you know, my ping time is, God forbid, 400 milliseconds and I'm just really far away from the server and just behind. Noob, it. noob, pwned. Yeah, but you're right. Rather than uh, like the way that they get from Flynn's off the grid hideaway to the portal is they like they hop on a freight train. Right. And like, really, the yeah. Way- the way well, first they drive, right? They drive a yeah. car from the hideaway back into the main central city, and then from there they take a train. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so, <laughs> but like, if you were moving a large, complex file from place to place, and you're trying to do this kind of without anybody noticing, you would BitTorrent it, right? And like, little bits of it would get moved at a time, which I think this could lead to a really great fight scene where you have like just I don't know one of one of Olivia Wilde's legs. And Jeff Bridges's like face and arm have to like get into a fist fight with whoever is waiting on the other side. All the rest of their bodies are like in lock at a time. This is something it, it always bothers me. Every single narrative I've ever seen that tries to conceptualize what the inside of a computer looks like utterly fails to interest me. Uh, and this is something that I mean, John, you were talking about this earlier with the light cycles. All in all. The special effects in Tron look like the attempts to convey what special effects should look like in the real world. Like, if you have a Cyclops shooting lasers out of his eyes, there's a reason why there should be, like, little sparks flying around, as you said. In the computer world, you don't need that. When things fly in the computer world, they bank as they turn. They shouldn't need to do that. You know, it would be much more interesting, I think, right. if they moved completely in right angles all the time. Um, and what was the other thing that really bothered me? When they go off the grid, what that looks like, which is presumably like the part of the hard disk that has no programming on it currently, right? Like there's nothing there. There's no system there. Um, it should be either static or completely empty. That would be like the interesting thing to do. What they have it look like is sort of dusty hills, you know, exactly like what it looks like in the real world when you get away from, you know, the Las Vegas strip and you're then out in the desert outside of Las Vegas. Yeah, that would have been the novel and cool thing to do, but instead they made Tron Legacy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I can't. Well, yeah, there, there, I mean, there are problems with, um, you know, I don't know. It, it sort of thinks it's an allegory, right? There, there are problems with the allegorization uh, of, uh, of what happens. You know, how do you, how do you represent something uh, in, a, in a different medium? What does the camera want? Right. And one of the things the camera wants to represent is a distance between 
space and movement between points in space. Uh, and so you have to move between points in space, whether or not it makes any sense. Yeah, the camera also wants what, uh, you know, the limited number of things that you're going to focus on as in like good guy and then a bad guy in the screen. You have two of them on there and they fight. And that's really easy to do. Not this like distributed swarming type of thing that we're talking about, which would be really cool and interesting, at least for, you know, us uh, idiot savants on the Internet to blab about. Um, But uh, it would be just difficult to portray on screen in a conventional way. Well, uh, if it were easy, anyone can do (laughs) anyone could do it. Yeah, McG could do it. That's why we're, oh. Oh, that's why yeah. we're um that's why we're not filmmakers we're podcasters uh and I think we probably should wrap this uh wrap this one up. So if you want to join the conversation about Tron Legacy if you want to join us in ripping on the movie you can do it by emailing us at podcast@overthinkingit.com calling 2032856401 or texting the same number 2032856401 uh or leaving a comment in our incredibly active um Discussion that always happens on the show notes on the website. What website, you ask? Why? It's the website you should visit every single day. It's www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably, probably doesn't deserve. I mean, we didn't talk about Daft Punk at all. We believe in one Tron, the Jeff Bridges, the Almighty, <laughs> maker of the grid and the earth, of all that is digitized and undigitized.